Well, good morning. <clears throat> I am particularly, oh, yes, I need to dismiss the kindergartners in first grade. I knew I was going to forget that. Um, and one reason I forgot is because there was a new announcement that I needed to make that had to do with airsoft rifles and the Independence Mall, which is to say that that was not true. Okay. Um, but it was uh, made a little more funny this morning by the fact that uh, there's a visitor here who I worked with 10 years ago doing Young Life, and this is the first time we met again. And so I can't imagine what that person was thinking when they heard that, my reason for leaving and coming back. So thank you for that, David. <clears throat> Aside from that, David did a good job of explaining who I am and why I'm here. My family is actually not with me today, but uh, my wife, Anna, and Hannah Grace, who's now nine, and Jack, six, and Sam, three, will be joining me during the latter half of the month. And so uh, we're really excited to kind of move back down and to see old faces. And it's a real privilege to be here. So I want to thank you for that. Um, <clears throat> and so as I preach these five Sundays, there are a couple of things I want to ask you to do. Uh, we're going to be preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And so I would strongly encourage you to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 uh, over and over again over the course of the next few weeks and to get familiar with it and to maybe ask the question, if I was preaching this, what would I preach on? What sticks out to me? And to engage with the text because I'm going to do the best I can to study God's word and to pray and to communicate it to you. But one way that you can participate in that is by uh, reading the text yourself and engaging it yourself so that you come here on Sundays kind of prepared to interact. And um, <clears throat> in addition to that, I would also ask for your prayers that when we come together, that God would speak. It doesn't matter much that I have a Master's of Divinity degree if God doesn't speak. And so that's our hope and our prayer, and I would ask you to join me in that prayer that when we get together on Sunday mornings, that God would speak to us. So I think of uh, taking Jack to the Cardinals game this <clears throat> few, or last year in St. Louis, and we went to the Cardinals game. What did we take? Of course we took a glove because we were out there in the stands, and our hope is that one would get hit to us. And so we brought the glove so we could catch it. And if that had happened, it didn't. But if that had happened, we would have taken it home and we would have cherished that. And so I pray that when you show up here on Sunday morning, your hope and prayer is that God will hit one to you and that you will be prepared for that and that you'll take it and take it home and cherish it. And that it will, it will affect and influence your life. So that's the hope. So um, there, I've already, I haven't even started preaching yet. And I've asked you to do two things or to, you know, Read this text and to pray, um, but please do those things. Uh, after the sermon, it will be my practice to stand out there and to greet y'all and speak with y'all, and I'd love to be available if there's anything that you would like to discuss uh, from the sermon or just to see you and to kind of re-engage with the folks here that over the six years we were here had become so dear to us. So <clears throat> I'll be there after the service. All right, got those details out of the way. And I want to begin today by telling you about a friend of mine named Gut. Now, Gut was nicknamed Gut for two reasons. Number one, his last name was Guthridge. So it sort of made sense. 
But Gut was a big guy. And Gut was a football player. And that's why he was nicknamed Gut. Gut played football for the uh, Williams Bulldogs in Burlington, North Carolina. And I got to know him when I did Young Life in Burlington. And Gut was one of those guys that uh, he was wild and he was fun. And he always brought a lot of energy to wherever he was going. He was a prominent football player. A lot of people knew him. And uh, we were delighted when he started coming to Young Life. And eventually, Gut winds up at Young Life Camp. And throughout the course of the week, he's bringing so much fun and joy and energy to all the events that we're doing. And um, about midweek, we're having this time together in our cabin, and this question comes up. Um, if, uh, if God were to ask you uh, why he should let you in to heaven, what would you say? And so different people are answering you know, giving all kinds of answers, you know. And I'll never forget Gut's answer. Gut said, if God asked me that, I would say, he probably shouldn't. And I was really impressed that this high school student had a real understanding of his position before a holy God. And I was also encouraged because I knew that we were only halfway through the week, that there was more to the story that he was going to hear. And as the week progressed, sure enough, he uh, ends up committing his life to Christ. And there was a great celebration. And then we came home. And this is where uh, the hard part began. Because he had had this experience of being born again, but now we go home and it's time to start living. And uh, Gut was returning to a world that had a very... Value, very different value system than the one he was now trying to adopt. And he was going back into a world that was tainted by the sin of others and by his own sin. And he was wondering, how do I live? And I think as Christians, we can understand that. But that's a question we ask, because we live in the same world, this world of ever-changing values. And even in our kind of evangelical Christian world, uh, there are all kinds of different messages that we hear about how to live as a Christian. Uh, a more extreme example just happened in May when a fellow thought the world was going to end, and of course that's going to inform how you live as a Christian if you believe that. But there are less extreme examples and different emphases on um, how we live as Christians in the midst of a world with ever-changing values. And then there's our own sin and selfishness. That complicates matters even more and creates an obstacle to how, how are we going to live for God? There's other people's sin that, you know, that has come against you. That also forms an obstacle. How are we going to live for God? So ultimately we ask the same question that God asked. How do we live? So Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount responds to that question. In Matthew 4.23, just before the passage that was read for today, we see the verse that says, And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. You don't have to, but if you were to turn to Matthew 9.35, you would see almost the exact same verse. In fact, it is pretty much the identical verse. 
And so Matthew's bracketed off this section. And we're going to be going through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is the teaching, the proclaiming of the gospel of the kingdom. And then in Matthew 8 and 9, which we're not going to get to, we have the healing of every disease and affliction of the people. So we're going to look at this uh, first section where Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now, I don't know if you're like me. I grew up in the South, and when I hear proclaiming the gospel, I mean, I can't help but think of this idea of an evangelist or a Billy Graham type who is uh, preaching the gospel and looking for some decision, you know, preaching for you to make some kind of decision to follow Christ, which, of course, is good and necessary. But I think Jesus is doing something different here. And the reason I think that is because he's speaking to his disciples. Uh, In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, he's speaking to people who who have chosen to follow him. They've made the decision, and now they want to know how to live. And so Jesus is not uh, proclaiming a gospel and urging them towards a lifestyle, but he's, excuse me, towards a decision, but he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and urging them towards a particular lifestyle. In fact, that word kingdom comes up again and again and again, 52 times in Matthew and 10 times in the Sermon on the Mount. So this is obviously something that's very important to Jesus. Jesus is explaining how we should live our lives in his kingdom. And he should, because he is the king. So how do these uh, teachings inform our way of life? How do they teach us how to live? Well, I've kind of broken this up into three sections. Um, This first section, because Jesus is king, we must adopt his values. Because Jesus is king, we must display his kingdom. And lastly, we must depend on him. So this idea of... Because Jesus is our king, we must adopt his values. We have these values here in verses uh, 3 through 10. You know, we live in this world that has all uh, different kind of values. Our world values prestige. Our world values power. Our world values uh, self-sufficiency, wealth. I mean, you can, uh, beauty, you can fill in, um, uh, you know, add to that list for a long time. But we notice that these values, verses 3 through 10, these eight principles, are very different from what we might expect. It begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It ends with, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. We have Matthew bracketing those principles off again. And the first four seem to relate, most commentators think, seem to relate to our posture before God. And the second four um, relate to our posture before man. And so when we adopt these values, these first four inform our posture towards God, kind of like the Ten Commandments. There's a portion of the Ten Commandments which is related, uh, which is speaking to our relationship with God, and then the second part of the Ten Commandments um, speaking to our relationship with our fellow man. So I want to talk a little about these um, eight what are called Beatitudes. And I'm recognizing, even as we read the scripture, I'm recognizing, oh, man, there are so many things I could say, should say, and you just can't say it all. And I'm probably going to say too much anyway, so forgive me. But um, I am going to, I'm just going to let you know right now, just skip over some things kind of shamelessly because, um, you know, you can only say so much. 
<clears throat> but we begin with this idea of blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Everything begins there. That's the doorway. This is definitely different from what we think of as Americans because, I mean, we were born. We were born with the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of my happiness. And so this already kind of confronts us a little bit. Poverty of spirit, what does that mean? Poor in spirit. Poverty of spirit means a spiritual bankruptcy, a, a recognition of our, uh, of our utter bankruptcy spiritually before God. So maybe here's an image that would help you. You can imagine, if you're a man, imagine that you're at the beach and you see a woman walk by and you have lustful, wrong thoughts. And you realize, yikes, I just, I just had thoughts I do not want to have. Or if you're, if you're a woman, maybe you can imagine um, you're in a conversation and you're, you are gossiping about someone, kind of trashing them behind their backs, and then you realize, oh, my goodness. I just said that's wrong. I'm a Christian. And there's a couple of different ways you can respond to your sin. One would be to say, you know what? It's not that big of a deal. It didn't really hurt anyone. And uh, you can kind of sweep it away. But obviously, I would hope for more than that. And I think Jesus calls us to more than that. And so another potential reaction might be to say, boy, I... I really blew it. I can't believe that I blew it like that. That I sinned. And boy, I need so much help to to get better. And I just want to be clear that that reaction does not represent poverty of spirit. It's just the opposite. Poor in spirit is the reaction that says, you know what? I just sinned. And I can believe that I did that. And I don't even know how wicked I truly am. I don't need help. I need, I'm a sinner who needs mercy. And I need not to be better, but to be transformed at my core. That's the language of someone who's poor in spirit. The language of the tax collector at the back of the church who says, Have mercy on me, the sinner. The language of Peter, who's in the boat when they catch this huge haul of fish, and he realizes, oh my, I'm standing next to holiness incarnate. And Peter says, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. I think of the hymn writer who wrote, upon the cross of Jesus, my eyes at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my stricken heart with tears, two wonders I confess. The wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. I take across thy shadow as my abiding place. I seek no other sunshine than the sunshine of his face. Content to let the world go by, to know no gain or loss. My sinful self, my only shame, my glory, all the cross. That's the language of someone who is poor in spirit. There's room in that life for a king. Blessed are those who mourn. It follows directly from this concept of poverty of spirit. This is not the mourning of bereavement. This is not uh, you are blessed if you are suffering grief over something. This is uh, blessed are the ones who mourn over that poverty of spirit, who mourn over their sin. 
I should mourn uh, knowing that this world is a more sinful place because I'm in it. You should mourn because this world is a more sinful place because I'm in it. We should mourn over our sin. When we read the newspaper and we see the brokenness of our world, it should have that effect on us, that effect of, uh, of cause us to mourn over the lack of uh, true righteousness and the lack of um, and the presence and prevalence of sin. Blessed are the meek. Uh, I, I like this word for meek, prouse. It is used to describe a Roman war horse. And you don't think of a Roman war horse as meek. Uh, when I hear meek, you know, my, my initial reaction is uh, to think of, just to equate it with weak. But that's not the case at all. This word was used to describe a Roman war horse who was so strong and so powerful. And yet it would stop in the middle of a thundering battle at the whisper of its master because it was meek. You see, it had all this power, but it was completely yielded to its master. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be satisfied. Uh, we are going to talk more about this and more about this idea of righteousness because that's another theme that's going to keep coming up. So I'm going to skip past that. Blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. When you show mercy to others, that's when you realize just how costly it is. We're moving now into the uh, horizontal relationships, into uh, the values for our posture uh, between us and our brothers and sisters. Blessed are the pure in heart, I think of Psalm 15. Uh, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Psalm 15, who can dwell in God's holy hill, the man who speaks the truth from his heart, uh, the man who, uh, in whose eyes wickedness is despised. Um, and I'm sorry, I am speeding up here just in recognition of uh, our time together. But blessed are the peacemakers. That says blessed are the peacemakers, not blessed are the peace sayers, or not blessed are the people pleasers. There are a lot of... Uh, uh, there could be some overlap there, and I have to remind myself that uh, it says, Blessed are the peacemakers. And if you have been in a situation where you're trying to make peace between two parties at variance, you recognize this is costly and difficult. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom. When we adopt these values, when we immerse ourselves in them, they inform our posture towards God and our posture towards others. Um, these are the values of the kingdom. They're the values of our king. So I'm going to move here to the second section um, that begins with... Uh, the salt that talks about the salt and light. You're the salt of the earth. Um, and because Jesus is our king, we must display his kingdom. And this is uh, uh, this has been the kind of direction that scripture is moving ever since uh, chapter one of the story. Uh, when God placed Adam on earth, it was to multiply and uh, fulfill the earth 
and to take dominion over the earth. And then after the fall, we have um, Abraham. We have God coming to Abraham and saying, uh, I'm going to bless you and through you, I'm going to bless the earth. I'm going to reveal myself to the earth through you. And then he says the same thing in Exodus 19 and he's, uh, to Israel. He says, you are my uh, peculiar treasure, my special people, my chosen people. And you are going to be a kingdom of priests. I'm going to reveal my kingdom to the world through you. And this is no different here when Jesus says uh, that you are the salt of the earth. And you are the light of the world. You know, this is a call to display his kingdom in every area of our lives. It's not you're the salt of the earth. On Sundays, you're the salt of the earth when you do your mission work. You know, you're, but in every area of our lives, this should affect us. Uh, salt in those days was used as a preservative. It was used to, uh, res- to add flavor to things. When you eat something, you can taste if it is very salty. And we should have that, uh, that, that flavoring, that influence in the world. You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine. This is the first imperative we get after these verses. And so these images militate against the idea of some kind of private, withdrawn uh, faith that is separated or cut off from action in society and from action in our world. And another reason we want to we must display his kingdom is to reveal the character of our king. I think it's important at this point to say we shine these qualities and these values forth not to earn the king's favor, but but to reveal the king's character, to show the world who he is. We want people to see our good deeds and to praise our heavenly father because he is the source of these values and he's the source of the light and the salt. When we display meekness, when we seek peace, when we mourn over unrighteousness, we're displaying Christ to the world. My wife went recently to a uh, a doctor's appointment, just a regular checkup, and everything was fine. And after the visit ended, uh, she was about to leave, and the doctor looked at her and said, you know, hey, everything's good, you know. And my wife said, yeah, great, you know, Um, how are you doing? And... The doctor said, well, uh, not that good. And the doctor sat down. And my wife said, um, do you want to talk about it? And the doctor said, well, uh, I just recently um, lost a friend to cancer. And she has two young children. And um, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And my wife was able to say, I, I am so sorry. And the doctor continued and said, how, how do you make sense of that? So my wife said, the only way I know to make sense of it is uh, to turn to the Psalms and to pray through the Psalms. Words of lament and words of mourning and words of grief. When I don't know what to say, they help me pray. And his doctor said, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it was such a beautiful uh, incident 
to me just as a reminder that um, all of our lives should be shining forth God's truth and shining forth um, who he is and his character and his values. If our Christian life and our following Jesus just consists of some quiet times and going to some weekly meetings and maybe retreat and maybe church, if that's it, then we're taking our light and we're putting it under a bushel. And there is a dying world out there who needs to see the light of Christ. Who needs to know that there is a God that understands grief and mourning and has given us a book of Psalms to pray through, to work through it with him. These values should flavor your work, your home, uh, every area of your life. Moving into the third section here uh, about why Christ came. You know, this is funny. When I read through this, we have first these principles of the kingdom, and then we have, you know, this, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And then I'm expecting what would come next for Jesus to say, so you go do this and da 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 and, you know, to tell us what to do. But that's not what happens. It's much more like the uh, Great Commission when after um, Jesus has died and risen from the grave and he's gathered his disciples and he's going to send them out into the world, um, the, the new age has begun and Jesus says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So therefore, you go. And the same way here, he gives us these kingdom principles. He calls us the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And then he says, and I came to fulfill the law. This is why I came, not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And because Jesus is our king, we must depend on him for that. Because we can't do that. We must depend on him to fulfill the law. You know, I wonder if you caught that when we read through the Beatitudes, as you were hearing them read or as I was talking about them earlier, did you catch this? That not only are we being given principles of the kingdom, but we're being given the portrait of the king. Blessed is Jesus Christ, who was poor in spirit, He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but who made himself nothing. Blessed is Jesus Christ, who mourned over the sin of this world and the lost sheep of Israel. Blessed is Jesus Christ, whose meekness was evidence before the hands of his persecutors. Blessed is Jesus Christ, who hungered and thirsted for righteousness. And you can go all the way through. This is a portrait of the king. Behold, your king, this is who he is. So we must rely on him to fulfill that law perfectly. We must also um, rely on him to make us righteous. And this is no different from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, um, the Old Testament people of God relied on God to explain to them the sacrificial system and to um, 
to teach them how that would uh, how that would destroy the barrier between them and a holy God. God gave them, uh, God showed them how to deal with their impurity and with their uncleanliness. Israel, God's people, were dependent on Him for this. And uh, it's just the same today that we depend on Him for our righteousness. If you were in this crowd and you heard verse 20, by the way, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven, that would be a little bit of an alarming statement. That would be a jaw-dropper like, I, the scribes and the Pharisees? I can't do that. But what Jesus is talking about is not a greater degree of righteousness, but a righteousness of a different kind. A righteousness that is born out of relationship. Not a, a righteousness that is born out of doing laws. So I want to ask, are you depending on him? Are you relying on him? And perhaps a good gauge to consider is um, you know, to ask, how do you respond after a failure? When you've failed someone, uh, you know, how, how do you respond? Is it the, uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to get better next time, or boy, I just I really failed. I need to double it up on the quiet times. I need to, you know, spend more time memorizing scripture. I mean, I mean, I think those things sometimes. But that reveals that in those times, I'm relying on myself. I'm not relying on my king. Recently, I promised my daughter, Hannah Grace, that I would take her and uh, to go, go do something with her. And the day came and went, and I missed it. I just... I forgot. I didn't do it. I failed. And it was very humbling because I had to go to her and I had to say, you know what? Daddy made you a promise and Daddy didn't keep it. And I'm really sorry and I can't make it right because it's done. And I need your mercy. You know, I understand if you're not ready to forgive me. But I'm ready to be forgiven when you're ready to forgive me. But I was dependent on uh, her in the same way we should be uh, dependent on our king to make us righteous. See, we come before, uh, when our sin causes us failure, we need to come before God as a person of broken spirit, poor in spirit, a person mourning, and we'll grow in our appreciation and wonder of Christ who embodies these, attitude, these beatitudes. And we'll see Christ as our example, fulfilling the, the, those verses, verse 3 and verse 11. But he's not just our example. He's also our substitute. He fulfilled the law we couldn't. And He can change us and transform us. And ultimately, this is the question we all always have to come back to, is who are we relying on? And I'm saying that because Jesus Christ is King. We must rely on Him. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is introducing His first disciples to life 
in God's kingdom. And 2,000 years later, his disciples still struggle to live this way. We long to adopt these values. We long to shine forth his kingdom. We long to uh, depend on him and rely on him more fully. And he still calls his disciples to do just that. And not only has he given us an example and the way to do it, but he has also shown the way by walking the road for us and being our substitute. And so this sort of moves us perfectly into communion. And so I'm going to ask the elders to come up because this is a place where the uh, these things come together. Here we see the values of the kingdom of God. Here we see the truths of God shining forth when we partake in the body and the blood. And here, when we come to this table, we acknowledge our utter dependence on Him, on Him to make us righteous. On the night that uh, Jesus was betrayed, He took bread And he broke it. And he said to his disciples, This is my body, broken for you. And you eat of it. Eat of it in remembrance of me. He also took the cup of the new covenant of his shed blood. And he said, Take, drink, and when you do, do this in remembrance of me. And when we do, we show forth the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his promise that the king will return. If you're a citizen of the kingdom, this table is for you. If you have not made that uh, decision yet to adopt that lifestyle, then I'll encourage you to sit and meditate or to consider what we've talked about during this time. I should also mention there are um, additional baskets over here for any benevolence offerings that you want to give, um, which is a practice of the church during communion. Um, These gifts will be specifically used used for the uh, ministry to the poor and the needy here. So when you're ready, please... uh, Come and take the bread and the wine.